Welcome to Searchlight with Stephanie. I am your host, Stephanie McLernan, and I hope that everyone is having a fantastic week. Let's dive on into our case. This week's case is the case of the missing boys of Caldone, Lloyd Eric Larsfolk and John Patrick McCormick Jr. My case resources this week are missingkids.ca, Doe Network in Canada Unresolved. So let's dive on in. As summer break was coming to an end, 14-year-old Lloyd Eric Larsboke, who also went by as Eric, was no different than your typical teenager around his age. He had had dinner with his parents that evening, and he was probably thinking about the new friends that he would probably be making in going into grade 10 at Mayfield Secondary School in a few days, or probably thinking about his birthday, especially being the new kid. I can understand this, as him and his family had just relocated from Fort Erie to Caldone. It was shortly after dinner time that Eric paddled his new bike down the the gravel driveway, and he was likely thinking about his blossoming relationship with his 13-year-old neighbor, Kim McCormick. Eric's father had watched his son disappear in the direction of the McCormick farm, which was less than a kilometer away, and it was shortly sometime after 6 p.m. Little did Eric know that Kim would be away babysitting for Paul Maureen Lalonde, who lived up the road, and Eric had barely known Kim's older brother, John Jr., who was 15, and had no way of ever knowing that he would never return home after that evening. Now for the next part, I'm going to be reading directly from CanadaUnsolved.com, just because I want to make sure that I have all the information correctly, and I don't want to deviate from it. So bear with me. So you know that famous saying that you never know anybody, ever, so don't think that you know somebody? Well... And this is about to prove that just a little bit further. The Lair folks had not been in the area long enough to know that John McCormick Sr. had the reputation as a volatile, paranoid alcoholic who loved guns, and as the fact that the OBP had been reportedly called out numerous amount of times out to the property beforehand. Jen Patton, a forensic case consultant and a medical legal death investigator and expert in the psychology of death investigations was working as a private investigator in Ontario in 08 when she had heard about Eric and John from a GPR technician in the U.S. during her pro bono investigation she had interviewed Kim McCormick. McCormick had told Patton that her father had kept a mini fridge beside his bed and drank from morning until the evening. His drinking fueled his very violent temper which was most frequently directed at John who quote-unquote irritated him. Kim had said John Jr. loved to drive the one farm car around the property and her dad would get so mad at him that he was ripping up the grass and stuff, said Patton. By all accounts, John Jr. was a troublemaker. Eric's personality did not drive with John Jr.'s personality and I was two years older, but somehow mine did, said Eric's older brother Dave Larsfolk. 
Dave can't remember the exact precise moment that the McCormicks had come into their lives, but he knows it was his and Eric's younger sister who had befriended 13-year-old Kim McCormick at some point during the summer of 81. And it was Dave, not Eric, who would eventually become friends with John Jr. sometime in mid-August after 17-year-old Dave joined his family in Caldone, and John Jr. had come home from Virginia. When Kim brought him over to the Lar folks' home, by then Eric and Kim had already been acquainted. John Jr. had spent most of the summer away. Earlier that summer, he had an explosive fight with his father, which some sources say resulted in John Jr.'s arm being broken. John Jr. had been sent to Virginia to recover with relatives for most of that summer, and he returned on August 14th, a few weeks after Dave came to Caldone. It was during these 10 days that John Jr. was home, he and Dave had started to hang out. Dave remembers sneaking inside of the house with him to steal a beer from John Sr.'s mini-fridge. And he remembers how the room was carpeted, walls and ceiling, and he remembers driving the black Chevy field car with John Jr. He remembers vividly John Sr. standing on the balcony of the house yelling at John Jr. And remembers how John Jr. would flip him off. According to John Jr.'s friend and neighbor, Dwayne Spears, he and John Jr. had been out late in Orangeville that night before. He says he was in shit for not doing his chores, so on August 24th, 1981, he wasn't allowed to go over to the McCormick property, as had been originally planned. Spears refused to say anything else about his childhood friend. Until the night they vanished, Eric and John Jr. had never hung out alone before together. John had come to the house to look for me because I had told him I was going to be home, Dave said who had left Caldone on Friday to spend the weekend with his friends in Fort Erie and had decided on August 24th, 81, to stay an extra night. So he came to get me, and then I wasn't there. So then Eric went, says Dave. Lonely kids on a country road basically is all it was. Eric's presence at the McCormick farm that night and his unfamiliarity with John Jr. and John Jr.'s contentious relationship with his father are among of the few facts agreed upon by each of their families. It was around 11 p.m. that Lloyd Larsfolk was jolted by a frantic pounding on the door. It was Joyce McCormick, John and Kim's mother, who had informed him that the boys were missing. There was no trace of Eric or John Jr. anywhere. The only clue that they could find was John Jr.'s beat-up black Chevy farm car, and it was discovered skidded to a stop. Its hood and door were open, inside the gate to the gravel pathway at the edge of the field behind the McCormick's house, which leads to the gravel pit behind it. The boys' spikes were found at the top of the driveway leaning against the house. When Dave returned home from Fort Erie the next day and joined the search of the McCormick farm, he immediately noticed the car. He says John Jr. took pride in his cars. He had six or eight of them, which he always kept neatly parked in a clearing between the field and the gravel pit. The car was out of place, and Dave knew exactly why the hood was open. He had been the one to help John Jr. figure out how to start it. That was his favorite, because it did run, but he didn't have the keys for it. They had been missing, says Dave. I had a dune buggy before when I lived in Fort Erie, and the only way to start that was by jump-starting it, because there was no ignition in the thing. So you just attached the wires, and then you put a screwdriver between the two terminals of the starter and started it. It made the starter work, and then the engine would run. Starting the Chevy farm car was a two-person job. When Dave saw it, the wires had been placed neatly on the driver's seat. It was still light out when Paul Lalonde drove Kim McCormick home at around 9 p.m. on August 24, 1981, while Joyce was still at work. 
According to Patton, Kim had said she was immediately concerned when she seen that one of John's old vans were leaking the oil all over their driveway and how it would piss off their dad if he had seen it. So she immediately set out to warn her brother, but Kim said she couldn't find John Jr. anywhere. Kim insists that there was absolutely no one else at the house except for her father when she had arrived home, says Patton. But the Lalons remember something different. Although Paul had passed away in 2008, Maureen recalls exactly what had happened that evening. Kim was here babysitting the two kids at our house. When Paul had gotten back from wherever he was, he packed the kids and Kim into the car and drove her home to her house, and that's when he saw the boys, says Maureen. They had had their bicycles. Paul drove a large beige Lincoln and was very was being very cautious about turning around because of the children in the driveway. When Kim got out of the car and had gone over to the boys, says Maureen, and then he had left and went home. Maureen says Paul never met Eric or John Jr., but he described the boys in detail. He described what they were wearing, their bicycles. He saw them very clearly in the driveway, says Maureen. It's the same story that the Lawns had tried to tell the investigators in 81, and it's the same story they told Patton in 2008. Maureen remembers that Paul had said that he saw two boys, wrote Patton in her notes from her interview with Maureen in 2008. According to Patton's notes, one of them had blonde hair and a page boy haircut. John and Joyce had separated in 1986. John McCormick Sr. had died of cirrhosis of the liver on October 15, 1987. Joyce remarried to a neighbor named John Nelson, and in 1991, Kim sold the farm to Ronald Graham and his wife Sarah. Both Kim and Joyce moved away from the area soon after. Neither Kim nor Joyce responded to repeated requests to be interviewed and surviving family members could not be reached. In 1981, the Lar folks searched for Eric and the truth about that night had just begun. After Beverly Lars folk died of breast cancer in May of 2000, Lloyd moved into a basement apartment in Brampton and for years he would frequently return to the McCormick farm and surrounding area looking for any sign of Eric. According to Sarah Graham, Lloyd would come walk the property every month, and now in his 90s, he was last there on a cold, wet day in the late fall of 2020, looking for his son. Throughout the years, Lloyd had also worked with Child Find to keep Eric's photos circulating in newspapers. Psychics from across Canada, the U.S., and as far as Australia came to the family with ideas about what happened, and nothing had led to Eric. There's nothing more important in my life than finding my son, Lar Folk said in a 2010 Caldone Citizen article. Nearly 30 years after he watched his son ride down, ride his bike down the street to an unknown fate. John Jr.'s immediate family would never speak to the media or cooperate with the Lar folks. The McCormicks had packed up his room the first week he was gone, and sometime after that they put up a headstone. It was like they knew he wasn't coming back, said Livingstone. The drastic difference between one family's silence and another one's screams compound the exact horror of these boys' disappearance. When Livingstone showed up at Darling McCormick's doorstep in 2011, it would be the only time a member of John Jr.'s family spoke to the media. Darlene was married to John Sr.'s brother, Michael, and they lived next door to the McCormick farm. Though Michael never participated in Patton's and Livingstone's investigations, Darlene did agree to talk. Darlene said she and Michael kept the same phone number in case of John Jr. ever called. She said they called him Little John and that he doted on Sarah, their infant daughter. Livingstone remembers Darlene as a lovely and comforting type of person. She talked about her experience with John Jr. and how much, she, how much time he had spent at their house, particularly because the home life at his home with John Sr. was obviously unattainable at times because of his alcoholism and the abuse that was going on and the sort of chaos, said Livingstone. So John Jr. would spend a lot of time there, and I know she said her husband and him were very close. She would bake for him and cook. 
According to Padden's notes, John Jr. Dar Darlene said John Jr. adored his mother and tried to get his father's love, but never succeeded. Darlene ended up dying in 2012. Livingstone also remembers how his conversation with Darlene had taken a turn when it came to discussing the night that the boys had vanished. I started asking questions about when they, when he went missing and it got dark. It just got cold for her, he says. She wouldn't say a whole lot about that night, and it was more about what came after I questioned about how much she actually knew. I think she was actually just scared, he says. So I'm going to take a brief, a brief moment to talk about a couple of, I don't know if it's possible suspects or anything, but um, just bear with me here. So unlike some of the high-profile cases of missing children in Ontario in the 80s, Eric and John's disappearance failed to sustain the interest of mainstream news media. In the absence of credible information, rumors spread online and in the Caledonia community. According to one source, the McCormicks refused to provide a photo of John Jr. to the police or the media in the early days of the disappearance, and the OPP eventually obtained one from a relative. When two children are missing like that, every rumor and every lead gets followed up on, said one retired Shelburne OPP homicide detective who knew the original investigators in the case and agreed to speak for the story on the condition of staying anonymous. There was a lot of people going missing in all those days all over Ontario, but there was some foul play with those boys. By the time that Eric and John Jr. had vanished, the community of Caledonia had already been shaken by fear and tragedy. In 1970, in the month of May, two nurses were found murdered in the rural Caldone homes. Nearly 30 years later, in 1999, DNA led investigators to Ronald West, a former Toronto police officer. West wasn't the only law enforcement officer who had committed horrific crimes in Caldone. Robert George Bob Lewis was a Caldone OPP officer whose 30 year career in the force ended with his retirement in 1997. In 2006, several victims came forward with claims of sexual abuse by Lewis that had occurred when they were young teenage boys in Caldone in the 70s and 80s. Following two Caldone OPP investigations, Lewis was charged with 25 sex-related offenses involving 10 young teenage boys. He was convicted in 19 of those charges. Lewis had attacked his victims while on duty, often using his cruiser. His victims described in court how they'd been intimidated by Lewis's uniform and stature, as he was well over six feet tall. Lewis had also befriended many of his victims' families. The area where Eric and John disappeared was Lewis's regular hunting ground, quote-unquote, as, as Patton had stated, adding Kim had mentioned Lewis's name but later denied knowing exactly who he was. The Hoakley Valley is littered with sinkholes, creeks, abandoned wells, horse farms, railroad tracks, and industrial mills. If you drive 20 kilometers north of Horseshoe Hill Road and make a few turns, you'll eventually reach the brown, dilapidated shack where George McCall lived in 1981. Near and throughout Caldone are gullies of distinct bright red Queenston shale. Little is known about McCall. He was a mechanic who worked odd jobs around the McCormick farm and at John Sr.'s auto shop on Hockley Road. He was an awful guy, yeah, but a drunk, but so was John McCormick, though, too, says Sarah Graham. John Sr.'s dad was a drunk, but he was a nice drunk. Everybody liked him at the dances, but not John Sr. His son? No. In 1981, McCall would have been around 27 years old, and he had three daughters with blonde hair and may have been in a relationship with a woman whose name was Isabel Stokes. He was always playing around, says Livingstone. He was, you know, 
a bit rough and sort of scared a lot of people. He was very intimidating. Everyone close to the case knows McCall's name and two stories. The first is he burned down a house, killing his wife or girlfriend inside, and the other one is about a dog. In July 1999, 46-year-old McCall used a chain to tie his one-year-old Rottweiler Nikita to the back of his truck for over 1.3 kilometers. McCall drove fast enough dragging Nikita on the road, and according to witnesses, when Nikita collapsed, McCall got out of the truck, made her stand, and kept driving. During this highly publicized animal cruelty trial that followed, McCall was verbally and physically confronted by an angry mob of over two dozen people at the courthouse in Coburg. The last report of the trial was in August of that year, and less than a year later, in 2000, McCall died of lung and throat cancer. According to Patton's notes, Kim, John Jr., and Joyce had all hated McCall. They nicknamed him the Weasel. And on August 25, 1981, Lloyd Lars folks stood with, stood with the Snellgrove OPP officers in the gravel pit, dragging the water in search for the boys' bodies while tracking dogs from Canadian... Can, oh, God. <sighs> Sorry. Canadian Forces Base Borden followed the boys' scent to an electrical shed at the gra- gravel pit's west edge, the exact spot where Dave had told told her or told them that he'd walked with Eric, John Jr., and Kim just days prior, before turning around. Lloyd had also noticed a white truck on the property and it was parked near the barn, covered in red clay. McCall was there, his coveralls caked in red clay, too. But there was also phone calls. Darlene McCormick said sometime after Eric and John had disappeared, she received anonymous phone calls from someone who told her to watch out for Sarah. She said those a voice sounded like McCall's, and Lloyd had also received anonymous calls. In one instance, a few weeks after the boys disappeared, Beverly picked up the phone. The person on the line had said that Eric and John were being kept alive in the basement of a home in Caldone. Beverly and Lloyd waited until dark, and then they drove to the house with flashlights. Lloyd broke in, made his way to the basement, and shouted Eric's name. The homeowner chased him out with a gun, shooting at him as he had fled. In 2011, Livingstone had had a brief parameter-based interview with the OPP. He also had a conversation with Curry. They wouldn't even really reveal a lot about, about who may be and who wasn't investigated, says Livingstone, as one of his conversations with the OPP. But I remember Curry saying McCall and McCormick Sr. were suspects at a point. In October of 2010, Detective Inspector Andy Karsik of the OPP Criminal Investigation Bureau officially reopened the case. That month, six locations on the McCormick property were searched using ground penetrating radar, or or also known as GPR, which can detect soil disruptions upon up to three meters below the surface. One of those areas was on the McCormick's barn, which had been searched once before in May of 2000. Several sources say that a new cement floor in the tack room of the barn was poured in the week after the boys had disappeared. It's unclear if McCall's property was ever searched. The OPP refuses to confirm details about the search and investigation and comment on the status, citing that it is an active investigation and privacy concerns. Sarah Graham says it's been a decade since anyone from the OPP has called and searched the former McCormick property. The former Shelburne OPP detective says he often thinks about Eric and John Jr. Where those bodies are, I haven't gotten a clue, he said. If I did, I'd be trying to help find them. The longer these people are missing, the harder it is to find them. Livingstone had said in recent discussions with Dave Larf, Larf, Larsbok that made him reconsider the narrative he pursued in his series, that John McCormick Sr. lost his temper with John Jr. and both boys were, were killed as a result. 
I don't know if that theory stands today as Livingstone. No trace of Eric or John Jr. has ever been found, giving life to the possibility of a different ending to the story. If you or anybody listening to this week's episode happens to have any information, please feel free to reach out to the Caledon OPP or Provincial Police Department at 416-582-2241. And again, as always, you know, you can call Crime Stoppers. You can also reach out to any of the resources available to you. I'm not going to sit here and theorize about what did or not happen to the boys, because um, I don't feel like that's fair to either one of the families. But, you know, it's just really sad that, you know, that we don't have answers of where they would be. It's just a, it breaks my heart realizing that, you know, parents don't ever get to see their children again or know what happened or have that closure. So I just hope that everyone keeps that in mind if you're going to be theorizing or anything. Um, so I want to thank you all for turning on your searchlight this week, and I hope you all stay safe, stay vigilant, listen to your gut, and I love you all, and thank you for tuning in this week, and I look forward to giving you another case next week. Thank you.